Hey, Elizabeth Slattery here. Before we get into today's episode, we would be so grateful if you would take a minute to subscribe to DIST on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating and a review. I'll wait. Okay, done? Now on to the show. This is the story of Bond, Carol Ann Bond, who discovered that her husband and her best friend were having an affair. And to make matters worse, her friend was pregnant. So what did Carol Ann do next? You might call her reaction toxic. Before she knew it, Carol Ann found herself in hot water with the federal government. And that led to two trips to the Supreme Court and ultimately a ruling in Bond's favor. I'm Anastasia Bowden. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And this week on DIST, we're looking at Bond versus United States. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. Carol Ann Bond was ecstatic when her best friend, Merlinda Haynes, shared that she was pregnant. But that excitement was short-lived. The father of Merlinda's baby was none other than Clifford Bond, Carol Ann's husband of 14 years. The life she knew was slipping away, and Carol Ann was in freefall, or rather, skyfall. She vowed to get revenge. It began as a run-of-the-mill plot to harass her former bestie, sending slash photos for your eyes only, threatening phone calls with promises to make Merlinda's life a living hell. Dead people will visit you, she warned. Tomorrow never dies. But Carol Ann's fury was unabated. Phase two of her revenge plot began. She worked as a microbiologist, so Carol Ann stole an arsenic-based chemical from her employer and then ordered potassium dichromate, a chemical used to print photos, from Amazon. Carol Ann then proceeded to spread the mixture, shaken, not stirred, on Merlinda's front doorknob, car door handles, and mailbox at least 24 times over the course of several months. Merlinda saw the substance and contacted local police, who suggested it could be cocaine and that she clean it off. It was no time to die for Merlinda. Aside from a minor burn on her thumb, which she treated by rinsing with water, Merlinda and her newborn baby were unharmed. Eventually, Merlinda contacted the U.S. Postal Service, which placed surveillance cameras around her home, a view to a kill or to a mild burn, as it turned out. The cameras caught Carol Ann in the act, stealing mail and spreading the chemicals on Merlinda's car and mailbox. The postal inspectors tested the chemicals and were able to trace them back to Carol Ann's employer. This led to Carol Ann being arrested by postal inspectors and detained at the Philadelphia Post Office. She was charged with two counts of mail theft, but also, points for creativity here, two counts of possessing and using a chemical weapon in violation of federal law. And it wasn't just any federal law. It was the one implementing the Chemical Weapons Convention. Technically, it's the Convention on the Prohibition of the Development, Production, Stockpiling, and Use of Chemical Weapons and on Their Destruction, a treaty the U.S. and more than 160 other countries ratified in 1997. Congress then passed and President Bill Clinton signed into law the Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act. The law makes it unlawful to develop, produce, acquire, transfer, receive, stockpile, retain, own, possess, use, or threaten to use a chemical weapon or assist with or induce another person to do any of these things. 
And the law defines a chemical weapon as any toxic chemical and its precursors that can cause death, temporary incapacitation, or permanent harm to humans or animals. But back to Carol Ann. She moved to dismiss the chemical weapons charges, arguing the law exceeded Congress's enumerated powers and violated powers reserved to the states by the Tenth Amendment. The district court denied that motion, so Carol Ann pleaded guilty, preserving her right to appeal. She was sentenced to six years in federal prison and ordered to pay a $2,000 fine and roughly $10,000 in restitution. Carol Ann appealed her conviction, arguing that the Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act violates the Tenth Amendment. The appeals court determined she lacked standing to challenge the law on Tenth Amendment grounds because only a state may challenge a federal law that encroaches on its sovereign authority. Carol Ann petitioned the Supreme Court for review. Here's Amy Howe, Supreme Court reporter and co-founder of the popular website SCOTUS Blog, with a brief summary. And so on the first trip to the Supreme Court, the question was whether Bond, as a private individual, can challenge a federal law on the question that it interferes with the state's powers, or only the states can bring such a lawsuit. And the Supreme Court unanimously agreed that she could. The court did so in a lovely opinion by Justice Anthony Kennedy, I might point out, one of my favorites of all time. Here's one passage I particularly enjoy. But federalism has more than one dynamic. It also secures the freedom of the individual. It allows states to respond through the enactment of laws to the initiative of those who seek a voice in shaping the destiny of their own times. And by denying any one government complete jurisdiction over all the concerns of public life, federalism helps protect the liberty of the individual from arbitrary power. The point was that the separation of powers is not an abstract concept. It exists to ensure individual liberty. But I digress. The case returned to the appeals court, where Carol Ann lost again. So back to the Supreme Court. And what were the issues the second time around? Here's Amy. There were two questions before the Supreme Court the second time that the justices agreed to weigh in. And the first one was based on the statute and really boiled down to whether or not these federal laws that implement the Chemical Weapons Convention were really intended to apply to a case like Carolyn Bonds. And the second is a constitutional question. It's a much more 35,000 foot question, which is whether Congress when it relies on its power under the Constitution to approve treaties, can pass a law to put a treaty into effect in the U.S., even if it wouldn't have the power under the Constitution otherwise to pass those laws. This is a good time to mention what the treaty power is, and we know just the guy to explain it. I'm Nicholas Rosenkranz, and I'm a law professor at Georgetown. I'm also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He's also the author of Executing the Treaty Power, a 2005 article published by the Harvard Law Review. And he's a Broadway producer. But back to Nick. The Constitution, Article 2, gives the power of the president to make treaties. The language is Article 2, Section 2. The president, dot, 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 shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties, provided two-thirds of the senators present concur. And there's been some controversy about uh, the scope of that power, but the uh, conventional wisdom is that a treaty can be about anything. 
A treaty can be either self-executing or non-self-executing. A non-self-executing treaty is in the nature of a promise, an international promise that will go home and enact some legislation. It sounds straightforward enough, but wait. What if we make some promise, but that Congress lacks the power to fulfill the promise? Uh, If you read Congress's enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8, they are enumerated, they are limited. What if the president makes a promise under the treaty power, which Congress doesn't have the power to fulfill under Article 1, Section 8? And in a case called Missouri v. Holland, the court seemed to say that under those circumstances, Congress would automatically get the power. Missouri v. Holland is a 1920 decision upholding the Migratory Bird Act, which Congress passed to implement a treaty between the United States and Great Britain, seeking to protect migratory birds in the U.S. and Canada. As Nick explained, Congress had passed a statute regulating migratory birds, and several lower courts had said that that statute was beyond Congress's power. Congress didn't have power to enact it. The Supreme Court hadn't said that, but several lower courts had. The president then entered into a treaty regulating migratory birds, the Migratory Bird Treaty, and Congress then passed, in effect, the exact same statute again. And the court said whether or not this statute was within Congress's power before, whether Congress could have passed this or not before, They definitely can pass it now. Uh, If the treaty is within the federal government's power, then the statute automatically is within Congress's power. You heard that right. The Supreme Court, with Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes writing for the majority, said the president could expand the federal government's power by agreeing to a treaty with another country. The key passage says, If the treaty is valid, there can be no dispute about the validity of the statute that implements it as a necessary and proper means to execute the powers of the government. Justices Willis Van Devanter and Malin Pitney dissented, but we don't know why, because they didn't actually write dissenting opinions. Perhaps that's a mystery we can explore in a future episode. But back to Nick. Justice Holmes wrote that in 1920. Um, I think it didn't get the attention that you might expect Because in constitutional terms, a relatively short time later, by 1937, we had the dramatic expansion of Congress's Commerce Clause power. And from 1937 to 1995, the court did not strike down any act of Congress as beyond Congress's Commerce Clause power. So the Missouri v. Holland question of whether a treaty can increase the power of Congress doesn't actually matter if Congress's power is infinite already. But then, in the Rehnquist era, the court held in United States versus Lopez and United States versus Morrison that Congress exceeded its power under the Commerce Clause when it enacted the Gun-Free School Zones Act and the Violence Against Women Act. And the court was rediscovering the idea that Congress had limited enumerated legislative power. And as soon as those cases arise, then the Missouri-Holland question becomes interesting again. So, okay, Congress lacks the power to regulate guns near schools under Lopez, but could it somehow gain that power, get that power from a treaty? That question becomes interesting as soon as there are limits on Congress's power. So can a treaty increase the power of Congress? 
That was front and center in Carol Ann Bond's second trip to the Supreme Court. The second Supreme Court argument took place in the fall of 2013. Paul Clement, superstar advocate and friend of Dist, represented Carol Ann Bond. Here he is summing up the crux of Carol Ann's case. If the statute at issue here really does reach every malicious use of chemicals anywhere in the nation, as the government insists, then it clearly exceeds Congress's limited and enumerated powers. This Court's cases have made clear that it is a bedrock principle of our Federalist system that Congress lacks a general police power to criminalize conduct without regard to a jurisdictional element or some nexus to a matter of distinctly Federal concern. The President's negotiation and the Senate's ratification of a treaty with a foreign nation does not change that bedrock principle of our constitutional system. And the Federal Government argued... Well, let's hear it straight from the horse's mouth. Here's Solicitor General Donald Verrilli. The framers gave the federal government exclusive control over the treaty function to ensure that it could knit the nation together as one and allow it to be fully sovereign in the conduct of foreign affairs. Petitioners' ad hoc two local limit on the treaty power can't be squared with the judgment the framers made, and it would compromise foreign affairs and national security interests of the first order. Chief Justice John Roberts posed a question about the scope of the treaty power and whether one could, in effect, give Congress the power to prosecute local crimes. Verrilli tried to dodge at first. Here's their exchange. The the purpose of my hypothetical was trying to find out if there's any situation in which you believe a uh, erosion or intrusion uh, by the federal government on the police power could be a constraint against an international treaty. There, There may be an outer bound. But this case is nowhere close to it, and, and, and it isn't, it can't be a too local exception to the treaty power. This court has said that, that there is an inquiry, it's said in dictum, it has never held that a ratified treaty exceeds the, uh, exceeds the federal government's constitutional authority. It's never held that a provision implementing a ratified treaty exceeds the federal government's constitutional authority. Then there was this exchange between Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Paul Clement. Mr. Clement, there's an irony in what you just said, because the victim many times went to the state police and said, please help me. And they turned her away a dozen times, and finally they said, go to the post office. So this doesn't seem to be, uh, you were arguing that this trenches on the state's domain. And yet in this very case, It wasn't until the state referred her to the post office, federal officials, that she got any action. Well, Justice Ginsburg, one way to understand that is that the state of Pennsylvania exercised its prosecutorial discretion not to pursue this matter. I don't think that, I don't even think the government says that that exercise of prosecutorial discretion put us in violation of our treaty obligations. Our treaty obligation at most is to have a law that prohibits this conduct, which the states certainly do. The treaty obligation is not to make sure that every single use, malicious use of chemicals is in fact prosecuted by the state or local officials. The justices clearly had fun with the case. Here's one more exchange from the argument. If you told ordinary people that you were going to prosecute Ms. Bond for using a chemical weapon, they would be flabbergasted. 
You know, it's so far outside of the ordinary meaning of the word. This is a statute has an enormous, an enormous breadth. Anything that can cause death or injury to a person or an animal. Would it shock you if I told you that a few days ago my wife and I distributed toxic chemicals to a great number of children? (laughs) (laughs) Your Honor. On Halloween, we gave them chocolate bars. Chocolate is poison to dogs, so it's a toxic chemical under the chemical weapons. I think the minimus non curat lex would take care of that, but this series, there is serious chocolate all over the place. There is serious, this is. Do horses eat potatoes? With all due respect, this is serious business. With all due respect. Did anyone tell Congress that poison potatoes, drug enhancing, performance enhancing drugs, uh, the example that Justice Alito used last time, you give a vinegar to a goldfish. I mean, these are all chemicals not in the annex, but they're chemicals. And they are absolutely nothing to do with chemical weapons. And No, no, these are real cases, by the way. The poison potato the was, vinegar, in the fact. The vinegar and the goldfish is not a real case. And I would submit that the millions no, no, don't no, cure they're, they're, not real, but they're not real cases because you haven't prosecuted them yet. If you don't... <laughs> As Amy Howe recalled, Don Verrilli, you know, could see where this is going and he was trying to stave it off. He said, I understand the point. And Justice Alito was not going to be denied the opportunity to make the joke. Justice Breyer said, you know, yeah, we're telling jokes here, but it's not a joke that you can make up examples that seem to have nothing to do with chemical weapons. That brings us to the ruling. The justices had their fun at the oral argument, but the majority opinion, written by Chief Justice Roberts, started on a more somber note. The horrors of chemical warfare were vividly captured by John Singer Sargent in his 1919 painting, Gassed. The nearly life-sized work depicts two lines of soldiers, blinded by mustard gas, clinging single file to orderlies guiding them to an improvised aid station. The painting reflects the devastation that Sargent witnessed in the aftermath of a battle during World War I. That battle, and others like it, led to an overwhelming consensus in the international community that toxic chemicals should never again be used as weapons against human beings. Bond's crime could hardly be more unlike the uses of mustard gas on the Western Front or nerve agents in the Iran-Iraq War that formed the core concerns of the treaty. There are no life-size paintings of Bond's rival washing her thumb. And there are no apparent interests of the United States Congress or the community of nations in seeing Bond end up in federal prison rather than dealt with, like virtually all other criminals in Pennsylvania, by the Commonwealth. So the majority ruled for Carol Ann. But on what grounds? Here's Amy. The court has spent most of the oral argument on the treaty question, sort of the big picture constitutional question. But in the end, the majority punted on the treaty question and went with the statutory question. They said that even if the federal laws are valid, they don't apply to Caroline Bond. They said the statute bans the knowing use of chemical weapons, but that term is so broad. The Supreme Court usually interprets federal law not to cover local crimes unless Congress has clearly said so, because the Constitution says those are for the states. And There's no indication here that Congress intended the laws implementing the Chemical Weapons Convention 
to cover these these kinds of purely local crimes, you know, given all of the conduct that would be swept in if you read it really broadly. And because the law implements a treaty that was intended to apply to war crimes and terrorism, there's no reason to believe that when they drafted it overseas that they intended it to apply to someone like Bond. So what's going on here? Why was the chief Dr. No when it came to the constitutional issue? There's this sort of John Roberts minimalism idea that, and there is, to, I mean, to be fair to the majority, there is this doctrine called constitutional avoidance, which is the idea that if the Supreme Court can avoid deciding a question involving the Constitution and resolve the case on a non-constitutional ground, it should do so. And so I think from the Roberts majority's perspective, that's what it's doing. It's just deciding the case on this very narrow ground and leaving this big picture constitutional question for another time. But not everybody agrees. We have a principle that the court tries to avoid difficult constitutional questions and uh, as well a principle of statutory interpretation that will interpret a statute to avoid a hard constitutional question if possible, if the statute's ambiguous. But ambiguity is the key word here. And for my money, the statute was actually quite clear. So yes, I think uh, Chief Justice Roberts tends to bend over backwards to uh, avoid the difficult questions. Here, I think he bent over too far backwards. I don't think the statute was ambiguous at all. Now, uh, you know, as you can imagine, the Chemical Weapons Convention and the Implementing Act were uh, um, written with different sets of facts in mind, right? But she seems to fit. She seemed to fit under the language. She was using a chemical to harm another person. And so, um, though it wasn't quite the purpose, maybe, of the drafters, it definitely seems to fit within the language. Here's the shocker, dear listeners. We don't have a dissenting opinion in this case. The justices unanimously agree that Carol Ann won. So why are we talking about it then? Well, there are three concurring opinions, but they're not your typical concurrences. Justices Antonin Scalia, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Alito concurred with the judgment, meaning they agreed that Carol Ann Bond's conviction could not stand. But they disagreed vehemently with the majority's conclusion that it could resolve the case based on the statutory issue alone. Sadly, we do not have audio, so we're just going to hit the high points of Justice Scalia's concurrence. Justice Scalia's furious concurrence in the judgment began. Somewhere in Norristown, Pennsylvania, a husband's paramour suffered a minor thumb burn at the hands of a betrayed wife. The United States Congress everywhere extending the sphere of its activities and drawing all power into its impetuous vortex, has made a federal case of it. What are we to do? It is the responsibility of the legislature, not the court, to define a crime and ordain its punishment. But today, the court shirks its job and performs Congress's. As sweeping and unsettling as the Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act of 1998 may be, it is clear beyond doubt that it covers what Bond did and we have no authority to amend it. So we are forced to decide, there is no way around it, whether the act's application to what Bond did was constitutional. Scalia explained, Applying the statute's provisions to this case is hardly complicated. 
Bond possessed and used chemicals which, through their chemical action on life processes, can cause death, temporary incapacitation, or permanent harm. Thus, she possessed toxic chemicals, and because they were not possessed or used only for a purpose not prohibited under the act, they were chemical weapons. Ergo, Bond violated the act. End of statutory analysis. I would have thought... The majority performed a gruesome surgery to deem this language ambiguous and in the process turned it into an unintelligible statute that fails to clearly define the conduct it prohibits. The detergent under the kitchen sink and the stain remover in the laundry room are apparently out, Scalia wrote. But what if they are deployed to poison a neighborhood water fountain? Poisoning a goldfish tank is also apparently out. But what if the fish belongs to a congressman or governor, and the act is meant as a menacing message, a small-time equivalent of leaving a severed horse head in the bed? Thanks to the court's revisions, the act, which before was merely broad, is now broad and unintelligible. Turning to the constitutional issue, Scalia wrote, An unreasoned and citationless sentence from our opinion in Missouri v. Holland purported to furnish the answer. Once a treaty has been made, Congress's power to do what is necessary and proper to assist the making of treaties drops out of the picture. To legislate compliance with the United States treaty obligations, Congress must rely upon its independent, though quite robust, powers. But in Missouri v. Holland, Scalia continued, the proponents of unlimited congressional power found a loophole. By negotiating a treaty and obtaining the requisite consent of the Senate, the president may endow Congress with a source of legislative authority independent of the powers enumerated in Article I. This places Congress only one treaty away from acquiring a general police power. The necessary and proper clause cannot bear such weight. He wrapped up. We have here a supposedly narrow opinion, which, in order to be narrow, sets forth interpretive principles never before imagined that will bedevil our jurisprudence and proliferate litigation for years to come. All this to leave in place an ill-considered ipsy-dixit that enables the fundamental constitutional principle of limited federal powers to be set aside by the president and Senate's exercise of the treaty power. We should not have shirked our duty and distorted the law to preserve that assertion. We should have welcomed and eagerly grasped the opportunity, nay, the obligation, to consider and repudiate it. Justice Alito wrote a brief concurrence noting that the chemical weapons law cannot be regarded as necessary and proper to carry into execution the treaty, and the government presented no other constitutional power justifying the statute. Justice Thomas wrote a concurrence arguing that the treaty power is limited to subjects involving interaction with other nations and may not be used to regulate purely domestic affairs. So was the majority simply declining to reach an unnecessary constitutional question or shirking its duty, as Nick put it? Justice Scalia's concurrence was a masterpiece, I think, and it begins with the statutory interpretation point, refuting the majority on the statutory interpretation question. In a sense, the statute at issue here was really a model of of congressional drafting, of statutory drafting, because every term that was potentially ambiguous was defined by Congress. There's just really no room to argue that what Mrs. Bond did doesn't fit within these literal terms, even though, as I say, it's probably not what the statute, not the story the statutory drafters had in mind. So Justice Scalia begins by, I think, really eviscerating the statutory argument of the majority. 
And Amy explained. As far as he was concerned, the federal law implementing the Chemical Weapons Convention is crystal clear and it applies to bond. He suggests that the the Supreme Court's actually doing a fair amount of harm here, that by interpreting it this way, the court is muddying the waters. And so no one's ever, either the statute's going to be useless or it's going to be a trap for the unwary or both, because you're never going to know whether or not the law applies to you. In practice, the ruling has not led to a proliferation of litigation, as Scalia warned. But it was a missed opportunity with respect to ensuring proper limits on Congress's power. Nick put it this way. So usually what we do in a claim about congressional power is we look to Article 1, Section 8. We look at the list of Congress's powers. And Mrs. Bond says, I've looked at the list and I don't see any power to regulate a purely domestic, purely uh, local assault uh, like this. Uh, Government, in effect, concedes that point, but says, well, even if it's not covered in Article 1, Section 8, even if Congress in general would lack this power, they actually have acquired this power because of this treaty. Justice Scalia says that can't be right. It can't be that a treaty can increase the legislative power of Congress. And Scalia noted this expansion of power wouldn't always be at the state's expense. As Amy observed... Congress could circumvent Supreme Court constitutional rulings by entering into treaties. And these are just examples, but he said, you know, plausible examples and entering into treaties on issues you know, that could circumvent the Supreme Court's rulings on things like, you know, the Gun-Free School Zones Act or the Violence Against Women Act. But wait, there's more. Not only could a treaty be used to expand Congress's power, it could expand the president's power at Congress's expense. Nick explained. If that's not startling enough, consider that if Missouri v. Holland is right, the legislative power can be increased by treaty. It can also be decreased because a treaty can be abrogated. And under the current conventional wisdom is the president can abrogate a treaty unilaterally. So for most statutes, the president has the power to veto the statute over some number of days, and then that right expires. Under the Missouri v. Holland type statutes, the president would have the power to abrogate the treaty and thus render the statute unconstitutional anytime at his sole discretion. Isn't that a bizarre implication? And if that's not strange enough for you, consider that foreign governments also can abrogate treaties. And again, presumably, once the treaty is abrogated, the statute has become unconstitutional. Now, wouldn't it be, don't you think the framers would have thought it bizarre that a statute, the United States statute, duly enacted by the House of Representatives, voted on, enacted by the Senate, signed by the president, could be rendered unconstitutional at some future date at the sole unreviewable discretion of, for example, the King of England. Yet this is an implication of Missouri v. Holland. To me, this is self-refuting. This is too bizarre to be correct. Bizarre indeed. You wouldn't expect the U.S. government to operate on Her Majesty's Secret Service, but the majority left the specter of Missouri v. Holland on the books. So... What's the upshot? 
For the most part, there hasn't been that much reliance on the Missouri-Holland principle because the Supreme Court has still declared so few acts of Congress beyond Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. So we have Lopez, we have Morrison, we've had uh, Sebelius, but it's still a quite a narrow universe of cases that Congress can't reach in general. And it's those cases that potentially implicate this Missouri v. Holland question. Now, I actually think that's good news because it would make it much easier, I think, for the court to overrule Missouri v. Holland, which I think they should do. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't thereby uh, declare hundreds of statutes unconstitutional. They would only declare this sort of narrow slice that are beyond Congress's enumerated powers absent the treaty. Did you hear that? Nick is inviting you to find a case to challenge Missouri v. Holland. In the meantime, unless or perhaps until, the court puts more limits on Congress using the commerce power to regulate everything from farmers growing wheat for personal consumption to people refusing to purchase health insurance, there's little reason for Congress to tap into the expansive font of power identified in Missouri v. Holland. So, while the constitutional problem Scalia identified persists, it seems Missouri v. Holland will die another day. But I bet you're wondering what happened to Carol Ann Bond. After the chemical weapons conviction was vacated, she appeared before the district court in the fall of 2014 for resentencing on the mail theft conviction. By then, she'd already served her sentence. The prosecutor, yes, the same one who came up with the chemical weapons charges, argued for the court to adopt an enhanced sentence consistent with the sentencing guideline for attempted murder. The court declined the prosecutor's request, instead sentencing Carol Ann to 18 months time served. Thus ends the seven-year legal odyssey of a scorned woman set on revenge. Perhaps this is the last we'll hear from Bond, Carol Ann Bond. But never say never again. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes from Russia with Love to DIST at PacificLegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode... Please know that diamonds are forever, and so is a five-star rating. And don't forget to tell your friends to check out DIST. You know, I think the craziest thing about this case might be that it was the the post office that arrested her, and then she was detained (laughs) at the post office? Like, don't mess with the mail. (laughs) Anyway, I'm sorry. I was just thinking about that. Like, the chemical weapons thing is crazy enough, but then it's the post office that got her. Yeah. Okay. Well. So, it's such a great case for uh, one thing because it has such lurid facts, right? I think it's one of those things, you know, poison potato, poison potato, because, you know, Justice Scalia thinks that they're, as you said, they're just wrong on the statutory question. (laughs) What? I like that there's like that long thing that it's like, so the majority ruled for Carol Ann <laughs> in some. <laughs> um, well, do you want to read some of it? <laughs> no, I just, it's funny to me. Um, Justices Antonin Scalia, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel. Mm, I'm so weird right now. Okay. Be normal. Be normal. Justices, a- Justices Antonin Scalia, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Ali. <laughs> okay. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Okay. A small-time equivalent of leaving a severed horse head in the bed. (laughs) 
He had a, he had a great he way with words. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put that in, John, and that's not a joke. All right, next. Mm. You. Sorry, I'm drinking my hot tea to warm up my vocal cords. Okay. <laughs> is there is there an opportunity for a title in there? In Octopussy. A five-star, a five-octopusy rating. <laughs> okay. And I'm going to do my cheesy top-of-the-episode ad. I like it. Which, Miss Theranos over there, I also want you to do something like that in your episodes. Holmes. Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, it's so loud in my ears now. I can, like, hear myself breathing. <laughs> I can't hear you, Grant. Grant, what you been up to lately? <laughs> I think I try to open a conversation right now. Doesn't yeah. change a thing. Okay. All right. Trade bomb. We put the damn beads down. I will go Carol Ann Bond on your ass. <laughs> ah! <laughs> it's my. I will mildly burn you. <laughs> mildly. <laughs> this is a very serious case. Is that too much? No, I love it. You're smiling. It's great. Okay. It's good. Smiling is Make good. Make it self conscious, guys. I mean, get used to the flattery. 